this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello and welcome to the first 2022 episode of Outward. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate, and I want to talk about an Instagram ad I saw recently. (laughs) It was for a queer company hyping up a hair pomade. The hair pomade was made for, according to the ad, women and folks. (laughs) The two genders, The two right? genders. <laughs> I mean, it took me a second. I thought I had misread it. But then, you know, maybe it's just the logical end result of what queers have been doing for a while now, which is replacing the word people with folks mm-hmm. for some reason, sometimes with an X, sometimes not, which I'm still waiting to hear about how that makes it more inclusive. But I don't, it kind of bugged me just because it feels like this is like a bick for her situation. Like, totally. we're existing pomades made for men and not folks inadequate for my womanly hair. Yeah, it's very, I don't know if you remember those old Target women sketches, which was done by that great comedian, Sarah Haskins. It was like making fun of exactly that kind of marketing. It feels, yeah, it feels entirely like that. So, well, we welcome women and folks and everyone (laughs) to our podcast uh, today. I am Brian Lauder, editor of Outward. And what I want to talk about right now is my favorite Christmas present, which I may or may not be wearing during this recording, which are a pair of totally floofy, very unsexy, supremely cozy flannel pajama bottoms that are covered in the Peanuts characters. Oh, that's cute. Ice skating and playing in the snow. (laughs) I might have been wearing these honestly since Christmas, but no, they're very cute for sure. And I love them so much. It's it's my favorite thing I got this year. Well, listeners, we have a great show lined up for you this month. The new year is always a time to take stock of who we are, what the hell we're doing, and maybe how many of us there are. But counting queers and studying us as a population has never been easy. And showing up in official numbers can actually have some downsides. Scotland's own Kevin Guyan will join us to chat about his new book, Queer Data, which explores the challenges and the ethical questions that pop up when we talk about quantifying queer life. Then we're going to discuss the Sex in the City reboot and Just Like That, which is chock full of trans storylines for some reason. We're going to assess those storylines on their merits and hopefully unpack the sex scene that had queers around the world saying, huh? (laughs) But first, the moment you've all been waiting for, the person you've all been clamoring for. (laughs) That's right. We found a third. We are... 
just over the moon to welcome to Outward our new co-host, Jules Gill-Peterson. Hi, Jules. Hi. Thank you so much. I feel like this is the most glamorous introduction I've ever gotten as a third. (laughs) You deserve it. So our listeners will obviously get to know you over time, but just to kick it off, can you give us three facts about yourself? Maybe, you know, where you live, what you do, and maybe a bonus fact. Definitely. So I am coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland, which is where I live. I am in my day job, a professor, a historian of all things transgender and fabulous. And a bonus fact about me that I'm sure listeners will get to know uh, very quickly is that I am a Capricorn. (laughs) It is still Capricorn season. So the power coursing through these veins right now from the stars is at its peak for the year. So it really does feel like a good time to drop in and hopefully, yeah, bring some electricity with me. (laughs) For those of us who are sort of only have like one toe in the pools of astrology, how would I recognize a Capricorn in the wild? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Well, you absolutely would always recognize a Capricorn in the wild. Uh, I think like this is totally an image that I got from my astrologer. But you know, the Capricorn is basically the person who can put out a call for people to run into battle and a whole army will show up. We move mountains in the world. Yeah. Really cool. I love that. Yeah. I just wanted to also quickly remind listeners that Jules has been sort of here in spirit on the show before. Um, if you remember, we talked about your op-ed in the Times about the fact that transgender children are not an invention of like the last <gasps> oh, five that years. Was you? Yes, oh, that, that was you? Yes, so fantastic, fantastic op-ed based on your research and your book. So th- I'm sure that will come up over time more in the podcast, but it was such a great op-ed and I'm so excited to have just for that little bit of of your expertise to have on the show. But I'm so excited for so much more, too. Well, me too. I'm excited to have a chance to talk about things that aren't all just the doom and gloom. (laughs) You know, things have only gotten scarier. And and that kind of cycle of anti-trans legislation is heating up again. So, Mm -hmm. you know, after everyone finishes listening today, please go and write your representatives and do some organizing because it is getting, uh, yeah, pretty brutal out there. But there's even more to talk about. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into it. All right. On that note, let's get down to business, by which I mean our prides and provocations. Brian, how are you feeling this month? I am feeling provoked. And this is actually a bit of a double provocation. (gasps) Can we handle it? I don't know. It's there's a lot going on in this provocation. So The main thing I'm provoked by is the world's first LGBTQ cryptocurrency. (laughs) I don't know if you've heard about this, but uh, it came out sort of toward the end of last year and and is, I think, now sort of fully operational. I don't know if that's even the right term for that, but it is called Maricoin. This is something that I, I, I will not claim to understand cryptocurrencies fully, but I don't think we need to understand them fully to talk about this because we're really talking about the name. So the first provocation I have is a little bit of media criticism, actually. Mm. So Maricoin was developed in Spain. It was started in Madrid among a set of LGBT businesses there in Tueca, which is the this, one of the gay neighborhoods there. And the name, if uh, you're not familiar with this, is a play on Maricon. So that is a, a slang term in Spanish that every story I read in English rushed to claim was a slur. The word they used to compare it to in English was faggot. 
so in Spain, I've had the privilege of spending a lot of time there because my partner has done research. I think I've talked about that on the show before. It can mean that, but what it more often means is something more friendly, like queen. And it's mm. like a term of endearment. Mari in particular is something you would hear among gay men. Maybe a little sassy, but mostly friendly. And so I was a bit provoked by seeing all of this English language coverage trying to say that the name was essentially like a mistake or like that the people who made this didn't know what they were doing. Versus like a reclaim. Yeah, exactly. Like as if we had said like queer coin or something, right? And it would be like, oh, that's a slur. Like some people might feel like it's a slur, right? Of course. But mostly we we understand it in a different way. And I think Maricon or Mari functions that way in Spain as well. So I'm calling out our English language journalism, I guess, in this case, to get the cultural context right when you're going to drag something, which should be dragged. <laughs> uh, to be clear, this 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 uh, <laughs> cryptocurrency is ridiculous and should be dragged. So more provoking to me is the main marketing pitch behind this, which is just that the it's the classic idea that LGBTQ people are powerful in some way because we are, are an untapped economic engine. <laughs> so here's a quote from one of the, the co-founders of this, um, Juan Belmonte. He says, quote, since we move this economy, I think it means sort of all economies, since we move this economy, why shouldn't our community profit from it instead of banks, insurance companies, and big corporations that often don't help LGBT plus people? I just want to say that like our buying power is not something that we should be proud of. And it's also in like a lot of cases an un unhelpful myth. And we could spend a lot of time mm -hmm. talking about that. But queer political values just cannot help but lead you to fighting against the economic status quo. I hope I don't have to convince people of that. And I think just in this case, encouraging queers and our businesses to invest in a technology that like most any sort of sober economist that I've ever read thinks is at like the very least in a bubble <laughs> moment, if not like totally unsustainable, just is like really gross and irresponsible. So I hope I don't have to convince you of this, but like let's give Maricoin crypto a big crypt no. Brian! Oh, crypt no. Crypt no to Maricoin. Okay, that's all. <laughs> that reminds me of, I forget if we talked about this on the show, but wasn't there some sort of queer credit card that we were all that all like queer journalists were getting fished oh, on God last year no. and it yes. would give you like five percent back on lgbt businesses yeah i think uh, there might have even been like a whole bank like a sort of ally style you know non-corporeal bank that exists yeah this is a trend that's happening maybe we should cover this at some point in a whole yeah. segment but yeah wow well thank you for making the distinction too because i just feel like it's such a cop-out in the journalistic culture to do this sort of like lazy linguistic reading that is so disrespectful to all Spanish-speaking people in the world instead right. of focusing on the real hard truth, which is that there is nothing gay about cryptocurrency, honey. That is the straightest, <laughs> most male bullshit I have ever heard of. So mm -hmm. it's a no for me. Yes. Yeah. We know RuPaul is fracking and now we have Maricoin. <laughs> like, I just, I don't like where this train is heading. Yeah. In the wrong direction. Jules, why don't you jump in with yours? So excited. Yeah. So I feel, you know, incredibly blessed to feel any pride in this dismal January that we're all going through. But what a total bright spot to have witnessed that our incredible girl MJ Rodriguez has won a Golden Globe mm -hmm. for her performance as Blanca in the FX series Pose. And, you know, there's a way in which 
you know, we're kind of living through this moment of firsts in, in trans representation and trans cultural production. It's easy to be cynical about that and say, well, it's all these big networks or it's just the system as it is. And so for me, it's not so much the fact that, you know, she was the first trans woman and, and certainly the first Black trans woman to win a Golden Globe. It to me, it's more about how much, you know, she and the other trans women on the show had been snubbed by Mm. award shows for the last several years. And, you know, I'm not going to get into that whole thing with Billy Porter winning all the awards and having a number of faux pas in the press recently. But Mm. in any case, what, (laughs) what really made me so happy was even though obviously the Golden Globes wasn't able to hold an in person award show. Rodriguez took to her live and just gave a really heartfelt, beautiful acceptance speech in which she shouted out all the other Black trans women and and trans women creators who lifted her up and who she's lifting up. And she really saw what she was doing as opening a door for people who want work. Right. And I think sometimes when we talk about representation and visibility, it's easy to critique those as being superficial. But what Mm. often gets left out of the conversation is like, Yeah, you know what happens when MJ Rodriguez wins a Golden Globe Award? It helps other Black trans women and brown trans women get jobs acting, right? And we're talking about people who have been shut out of the labor market in so many ways for so long. And so to me, I just feel this immense sense of pride and happiness. And it's just nice to have a W right now. (laughs) So (laughs) I bow down to our queen, MJ Rodriguez, because she really is a multi-talented threat out there. I mean, gosh, like, is there anything she can't do? Give this woman the world and give all the other girls out there working hard and hustling the world too, because she really is shining a light for us. I really like that pride. And actually, yeah, I, do too. I this is where I admit that I haven't watched Pose. And it's definitely time for me to watch, not just because of the Golden Globes recognition, because, you know, I don't believe in taking the systems cues as far as web <laughs> culture to consume but yeah it's definitely time and like you Jules I could use a little uplift right now though I'm sure the show is plenty dramatic I mean I was gonna say if you're looking for uplift I wouldn't <laughs> yeah. <really> recommend yeah. <laughs> and, and look like the show is complicated and I, you know I could sit here and offer criticisms of it for a long time that have to do with its writing and conception yeah it's really hard to do what the show sets out to do but to me In some ways, like, I think we get so fixated and our culture kind of goes all in on purpose on this, like, well, this is the trans show, right? This is the Black trans women's show. And so either it's going to be good or it's going to be bad. And we're going to judge the entire, you know, meaning of Black trans people or Black queer people for American culture on this one show. And to me, it's much more important to be able to say that, like, that show happened. It broke a Mm -hmm. lot of ground in the industry. And now... The door is wide open. Let's have 10 new shows that go in so many other directions. And uh, that to me is partially what's so exciting. My pride is also, it's less glamorous, but it's also a trans win. I'm talking about Amy Schneider. Do we have any Jeopardy fans in the house? (laughs) No? I mean, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So... Listeners, perhaps you watch Jeopardy. I personally don't watch it in my everyday life, but I do it when I'm visiting my parents, which Mm. I was doing over the holidays. And it was a total surprise to me as I was sitting there with my mom to see a trans woman as like the reigning champion. She's now 
won at the time of this taping 30 games in a row. She's passed a million dollars and she's, you know, all kinds of firsts, not only, you know, the first openly trans contestant to qualify for whatever Jeopardy's big tournament is. She's also the highest winning woman contestant ever. Mm. But even that is not the reason why I'm proud of her. I'm proud to be in community with Amy Schneider because she is clearly having so much fun and she's Mm. such a delightful character. So she, first of all, if you follow her on Twitter, which I highly recommend doing, mostly if you're interested in Jeopardy because that's what she tweets about. (laughs) At the end of every game, she tweets a detailed thread about how she knew every question that she got right, how she was strategizing about like what to bet on her little daily doubles and stuff like that. And, you know, basically what her emotional state was at every point in the game. And it's so illuminating, especially when you're watching somebody as smart as her who somehow knows every single fact that arises on every (laughs) subject matter like how does she know that well for instance she got a question about moby dick right and she tweeted the whale facts in moby dick are hardly the most interesting part of the book but if you read moby dick a few times you'll absolutely learn a fair amount about whales so you know just read moby dick (laughs) a few times gotcha got it you two could win a million dollars on jeopardy casual The other thing that I'll say about her, and this is what really won me over as I was watching with my mom, you know, on every Jeopardy show, you get to say a fact about yourself. And she's been on 30 times now, or maybe more, you know, because again, this show will air about a week after we record. But she's probably running out of facts about herself (laughs) that are like fun enough to be on Jeopardy. So the fact that she gave when I was watching over the holidays was that she and her girlfriend both love taking long elaborate baths so much that it's become a hardship that they only have one bath in the house because only one of them can be bathing at a time so they're looking for a house with two baths (laughs) and now that she's won a million dollars on jeopardy I'm really proud that she can probably afford that. We should let her know that you can get, there are bathtubs that I've seen in like in hotels, for example, that are totally big enough for like two or three or four people with her winning. She deserves (laughs) (laughs) to have the experience of, unless, unless they want separate baths, but like, yeah, I would love for her to to get, to get a giant bathtub. Yeah, we should definitely explain that to her. (laughs) I mean, she also lives in the Bay Area, so I'm sure that Mm. even buying a house with room for two baths might be prohibitive, but- Yeah, I'm just, she's such a joy to watch. I highly recommend it, even if, you know, you don't watch Jeopardy on a regular basis. I'm so obsessed with the idea of getting to learn the thing. Like, that's that's always what I'm curious about is what is the like wild net of associations that people use to kind of get to reasoning their way through that. So I'm going to look that up right after this for sure. All right, that's our prides and provocations for this month. Now we will go to our next segment, which is talking about queer data. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'll confess that when I got a pitch email about our next segment, at first I was a little bit skeptical. How could a book about data, however queer, not be, well, let's say a little bit wonky and abstract? But when I looked at the acknowledgments, I was quickly convinced of how deeply important to our real lives this topic could be. Queer data, they began, is dedicated to those not in the room when decisions are made about them. People at the sharp end of administrative practices, assigned a category but denied a say. Individuals not counted accurately and individuals not counted at all. Queer data is for everyone who has had to provide yet more data as proof of injustice in the hope that the system will change, if not now, but in the future. Queer data is for those asked to provide data to prove their existence. We're joined today by the man behind those pretty stirring words, author Kevin Guyon. Guyon is a research fellow in the School of Culture and Creative Arts at the University of Glasgow. And his work explores the intersection of data and identity, particularly as it relates to LGBTQ people in the UK. His new book is called Queer Data, Using Gender, Sex, and Sexuality for Action. Welcome to Outward, Kevin. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for being here today. So you start this book by noting a tension, as you call it, at the heart of queer data. You say that it describes sort of both the institutional collection of data about queer people and the various uses of that, good and bad, but also the attempt or desire to queer data. You write, quote, question the foundations upon which these categories stand, the value granted to some identities above others, and who actually benefits from this collection, analysis and use of data about LGBTQ people. Can you just start us off by unpacking sort of what that tension means to you and give some examples maybe of what you're talking about on each side of it? Yeah, I think what you've picked up there is the real kind of foundational tension in the work. I think when I kind of speak about queer data, there's kind of two strands to it. So I think one strand being data about LGBTQ communities, whether that's about education, health, crime, money, these types of things we we see quite commonly is one strand Mm -hmm. of queer data. But then kind of working alongside that and, and sometimes in opposition to that, our ideas about querying kind of data methods and data practices. Mm. So by that, I mean, whether it's surveys, whether it's um, administrative systems about registering for a driving license or a passport or a, a mortgage application, these types of systems and practices, which are part of our everyday lives, mm. actually, when we apply maybe a queer lens to it, so whether it's kind of work from queer studies and queer theory, it starts to kind of ask questions about the design of these supposedly neutral or supposedly apolitical or ahistorical practices. So I think when writing the work, I really saw a tension in the benefits of the kind of need to be counted or the benefits that can come from being counted, but also the opposite side of the coin that acts as a lot of dangers and kind of traps perhaps laid in these designs and practices, which put lots of LGBTQ communities at risk from kind of falling into those traps. 
One of the parts of your book that really got me thinking was when you talk about biometric data collection and how there are so many different types of data. You know, I obviously know that that is data, but I it, it got me thinking, for instance, about something we've talked about on this show before, which is what happens when you're a gender nonconforming person at the airport and your body gets scanned and someone has to make a decision about, you know, what sex they think you are and pushes a button Recently in the U.S., trans people won a fight to be able to have a marker X on your identification papers, which, you know, is fantastic, perhaps for people who are gender nonconforming, people who are non-binary, people who don't want to participate in the sort of binary gender markers of identification papers. And if implemented correctly, it could mean, you know, some type of freedom from harassment by data collectors. But one trans person in my circles, you know, responded to that by saying, well, this would be a great way for the government to build a database of trans people and surveil mm. them. And, you know, I'm definitely not naive enough to think that that couldn't happen here. But it, it struck me as possibly a little bit of an overreaction. But, you know, can you speak a little bit about how any provision of data along these lines means deciding what you might gain. You know, in this case, it might be a gender marker that aligns better with your identity and makes it easier to go through, who knows, maybe it doesn't, uh, an airport security line. But, you know, is that worth what you might be giving up? I think that goes back to the point earlier around kind of the, the double side to the issue. And I think particularly a really big example right now is the census in Scotland and the UK for the first time is asking two new questions. So one on sexual orientation and one on transgender identity. So this means that for the first time, everyone over the age of 16 is going to be asked or has been asked a question um, to kind of identify their sexual orientation and whether or not they identify as trans. Wow. So on paper, that sounds really exciting. and That sounds a real progressive step forward. And undoubtedly, there are many, many benefits to capturing data on those categories in a national census. But at the same time, I think that disclosure of information about yourself brings a lot of risks, um, whether it be current concerns about data security, data protection, but also who knows where we'll be in 10, 15, 20 years. And having this fantastically detailed data set on everyone who identifies as queer does potentially present um, a real danger as well. So I think that kind of dual edge to, I guess, I guess visibility, I guess sometimes we think about visibility being an intrinsic good, but actually there are situations and contexts and events that can happen where increasing your visibility does potentially put you at risk for certain things. And I think, again, when we think about data, it's that dual edge to it, that um, risk of making yourself more visible through data, but also the risk of being erased or not being counted at all. And I think both examples of the passports and the census, one issue here as well is who's actually designing these mm, systems and right. these, these forms, these passports. It is often by a cis, uh, heterosexual majority who are kind of designing these systems and practices, which queer communities then need to try and fit themselves into somehow. And uh, with the example of the census, the questions, uh, the kind of response options were, were quite limited. Um, they didn't count non-binary people, for example. So again, trying to fit yourself into a system which isn't designed from the ground up by queer communities does pose a range of different issues. And you also write that whatever the results of the Scotland census are, 
people who have been campaigning against queer and trans rights will find a way to weaponize, you know, whether the population mm -hmm. of queer and trans people are large or small, you know, either it's, oh, there's this small minority that doesn't matter, or it's, oh, there's this epidemic of, you know, people transitioning or whatever. Right. You write about you write about the danger of like, especially LGBT organizations looking for like the magic number that's going to unlock, <laughs> you know, goodwill or whatever. But but right, as Christina says, that that maybe isn't true. Yeah, I think it's a real danger. I think that kind of in the book, I kind of walk through the journey of data from collection through to analysis through to how do we use data. And I think that third and final stage around the use of data is really key. Because like you're saying, Christina, irregardless of the percentage of LGBTQ people in Scotland, whether it's 2%, 5%, 10%, that number can be weaponized for a variety of different purposes. So I think it's important for us to kind of preempt that and think through how can we, regardless of the actual evidence at the end of the day, how can we ensure that this data is used in ways that benefits and changes the lives of queer communities for the better? And I think particularly with the example of the kind of the weaponization of data is something, again, which hasn't really been spoken about hugely. And particularly in kind of more mainstream LGBTQ rights groups, again, there's maybe a hesitancy to try and to muddy the water or to kind of confuse the messaging. There's a lot of benefits in simple messaging about the benefits of being counted, the benefits of being represented. But actually, there are some small dangers in that and some risks that I think there's no harm in us preempting them and being ready to kind of respond to them if and when they do emerge. One of the other provocative things that the book raises is this tension around the tendency these days toward queer identity, moving away from sort of the, the even like the acronym sort of categories, uh, stable categories that we're sort of familiar with and moving into a more fluid, changing understanding of, of identity changing over time or over, over a person's life and that kind of thing. And that poses, as you write, problems for data collection when the model of data collection, at the very least, is about checkboxes and like, are you this or are you that? You write very eloquently that, quote, there is no simple solution to the push and pull that exists between understanding identity characteristics as something disparate and fluid versus something that you can tick on a diversity monitoring form. Um, if there's not a simple solution, what are some ways you think about reconciling that tension? Because it really does seem like a very tough one. I think that that's, I guess, the magic question. How do, we, yeah. <laughs> how do we design a perfect solution to this problem? I think what I kind of get to the end of the book is... I guess, maybe having a kind of ambivalent approach mm. to, to data practices. And I think having the, the agency to think through how am I going to engage with these existing systems, these existing institutions as a queer person. And in the end of the book, I kind of walk through a few ways in doing that. So taking the example of the census in Scotland, this is the first time these questions have been asked. And my personal view is we, we should engage with the process. We should see if it works. Um, we should see if it's if the data is used to positively impact our lives at the end of the day. Um, whether or not the government are going to use this data for good purposes, this is something that we need to be involved in. However, if actually in five, ten years' time, I don't see that this practice, this institution, is using data about me to positively bring about positive changes, then actually there are opportunities to then say, actually, we need to either reform this practice, this institution, or ultimately not engage and abolish this this kind of structure and system. And I think if we think of data as something that we have and we possess and we can choose when and if we want to share that with others, I think, again, reimagining that agency that you have to pick and choose when and when not you want to share information about yourself is really key. And I think it's a, 
a scholar based in the US called Ruha Benjamin, who's written about um, informed refusal and this mm. kind of flipping on the head of informed consent. And actually, we should be more thinking about when and how do we engage with people who don't want to share their data for whatever purposes. And I think things like the census, I'm of the view that we should maybe start by seeing how things go. But if ultimately the data is not used to make the lives of LGBTQ people better, then actually maybe we need to think about either reforming the system or ultimately abolishing it. One of the challenges in something like a census is, as you've mentioned, how many options do you give people for how they identify? You said, you know, they're not counting non-binary people. And I remember there being a lot of sort of cheering in queer media and in queer circles, a lot of congratulatory coverage a few years back when Facebook introduced, you know, five dozen different ways to identify yourself, yeah, gender-wise, right. sexuality-wise. And I think this, that type of thing, you know, the pull-down menu with innumerable options is what a lot of people think of when they think of good queer data gathering because you're not limiting how people identify themselves. You know, let's give people a million ways that they can describe themselves in hopes that they can choose something accurate. But your explanation of what actually happened in that Facebook data gathering, it kind of made me laugh. Like it was like a sad trombone um, response to the whole thing. Can you explain what that was all about? <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I know that um, people have written about um, this kind of drop-down list, all these new long lists of Facebook gender identities, sexual orientations, um, and then when this was introduced, actually at the back end, they were aggregated into kind of lumpy categories where regardless of what you were ticking, you were just kind of thrown into a box where you were basically a, a general LGBTQ uh, user. Mm. I think there's been similar stories around Netflix, other platforms where, again, the aggregation data has lumped together black, trans, queer women into the same groups as white gay men, this kind of just general right. aggregation of non-straight, non-cis. Um, and I think for me, this raises a few different questions. I think that kind of illusion of diversity or that illusion of inclusion is something which kind of reappears in a few different parts of the book about actually for organisations and systems which are designed a certain way by kind of presenting this kind of glaze of diversity or this glaze of inclusion in some situations can kind of offset some critiques of the overarching structure and things like the census again you can kind of apply that same lens so that by adding a question on sexual orientation that potentially gives the structure system a longer shelf life because it's mm. seen to be progressive or seen mm. to be inclusive mm -hmm. but as people like um kind of dean spade has written far more eloquently about than i can these advances and developments tend to benefit the least minoritized within minoritized groups. So, for example, something like a census, when it collects data on sexual orientation, it tends to benefit and count white, cisgender, gay men and women the most. How does that work? What do you mean? Categories in Scottish census are lesbian, gay, bisexual, straight or other. There was some debate and some pushback around the inclusion of an other category in that list. And... Ultimately, the decision was made to keep the category as a response option with a write-in box. But if that category was dropped, um, lots of younger people, for example, identifying way, ways beyond LGB, and that data would have been lost or aggregated into a more kind of catch-all group. Mm. Uh -huh. We see similar arguments around the kind of legal, legal fight for marriage equality. Um, again, tended to benefit people who were most likely to marry, who were sure. white, cisgender, non-disabled, affluent, gay men and women.
one theme that you explore in the book that I found particularly interesting and, and a little bit confounding is the idea that the act of collecting data and asking questions of people can actually change those people, you know, the participants in a survey, that it can actually help construct or solidify identities and not just sort of explain what's already there. Can you explain that? And how does that apply to queer and trans people? I think it's a really fascinating area of research and a really big question, a big, I guess, philosophical question. And I think there's maybe two or three strands strands to it. So one strand is some pushback around when people speak about data being it shouldn't be validating, it shouldn't be something that is of benefit to the respondent. And actually, I think there are many situations where there's a lot of meaning in being counted, being recognised, seeing yourself reflected in a response option, in a survey, can actually mean a lot to people. And I think that's something which we should never overlook. For example, in Scotland, I find it really exciting that next March, when we run the census, everyone will be asked about their sexual orientation, whether you're in a big kind of city like Glasgow or in a kind of small farm up in the Highlands. Again, that kind of sense of being seen and being counted has a real important dimension to it. And I hope and I think that actually that act, that process of opening up these conversations, raising consciousness about gender, sex, sexuality, can actually impact and change um, people's lives for the good. I think the second dimension to it is this area and this broader kind of question of how do we kind of construct knowledge and how do we produce knowledge through the methods that we use as researchers? So not to get kind of too academic or too too detailed about it, but there are something about how does our involvement in the process of observing things actually shape the things that we're trying to observe? Mm-hmm. And when we think about surveys or we think about um, conducting focus groups or interviews, there is a question about actually to what extent does asking somebody about their sexual orientation or their gender identity open up or introduce them to new ideas about, oh, I never thought of that, or, oh, that's something which is quite new to me. Or when it comes to actually seeing the data published, if you think that you're maybe queer but never met somebody else who identifies as queer, then you look at the data and see that 5% of the population in the country identify in this way. What does it mean about building that sense of community through data or seeing yourself a part of a larger tapestry or a larger world beyond your own individual existence? And I think that's a really exciting potential for data about queer communities. And historically, possibly one of the benefits of being counted is kind of positioning yourself beyond an individual and as part of a larger community. And even for straight people, too, to, you know, sort of force them to identify that, like, yes, I have a sexual orientation, too, and it's Mm. one of many, and I'm not just sort of the norm from which everything else departs. Kevin, you write that you, you know, you intend this book to be certainly for people who are sort of working in these fields, but also for non-specialists as well to help us understand what's going on there better. What would you hope our listeners and, and your readers who are indeed not specialists sort of just take away from this at the end? I guess my one takeaway from the book is I hope people ask more questions about data, but particularly about quantitative data, about numbers. I kind of, at some point in the book, kind of unpick and explore the idea of numbers never lie. And actually, I think there's a lot of issues there still to be unpicked and challenged. I think around quantitative methods, around quantitative data, around surveys, around big things like the census, Mm -hmm. actually, my involvement in designing the Scottish census really exposed to me that it's full of biases, it's full of politics, it's full of power. And I think having that kind of critical eye to data is really key. 
And I think again, my my kind of background, my longer academic background is is a historian. It's in history. And I think again, we need to think actually historically, what's the relationship between LGBTQ communities and data about LGBTQ communities? And historically, it's a pretty bad relationship. And mm-hmm. um, historically, data has been used about queer communities to prove evidence of criminality, of psychological problems, of being different from the norm. And actually, that historical relationship between LGBTQ communities and particularly quantitative data still has ramifications today. And I think it's having that critical eye to when, why are we being counted, what's the benefits of being counted, mm-hmm. who is counting us, and to what ends do they want to count us. And I think as long as people approach these exercises and these institutions with a critical eye and sometimes engage, but sometimes actually feel I'm not going to engage, I think that's maybe my kind of key takeaway from the book. I think that's a great one. Our guest has been Kevin Guyan. His new book is called Queer Data. It is out this month from Bloomsbury. Thanks so much for joining us, Kevin. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Christina. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Our next topic, the return of sex in the city. Uh, strap on your Manolos, gals. Did I do that right? <laughs> HBO brought the show back in December with all the marquee actors on board, minus Kim Cattrall as Samantha, RIP. Um, not really. She's still alive. So there's weirdly a lot of queer content in the reboot, including a bread delivery service that exclusively employs you know, muscle-bound gay men. But we're not going to talk about that. We are here to discuss the two storylines involving trans characters. If you haven't watched the series yet and you want to or intend to, just FYI, there are spoilers ahead, possibly up to and including episode seven. All right, now that you've all tuned out and we're amongst friends here. (laughs) The reason why I wanted to talk about this series with you two is... Not necessarily because the substance of the trans stories in the show is particularly groundbreaking, although maybe it is. We should definitely evaluate that. But mostly I found it notable and honestly peculiar, possibly suspect, that trans people are playing pivotal roles in the story arcs of two of the three main characters. So both Miranda and Charlotte have, you know, trans people in their lives who are eliciting some personal transformation for them. That is a lot of trans for a show about cis people. So I want us to consider three main things. Why are these trans characters here? What do we think of them and their stories? And would you fuck with Che Diaz? (laughs) We'll save that one for the end. (laughs) 
so I want to first I just before you know I talk about my reactions to these what do you two think why do you think the writers put trans people in these two story arcs can I ask for one a quick thing before we do that Christina yeah of course I, I would just love to know all of our very quickly all of our previous relationships to sex in the city because I think that will sort of shape uh, mm. in a lot of ways our reaction to this to this reboot so I'm just curious if we can just like hear that I'll just very quickly say that mine was I didn't see it when it was originally on but someone in college gave me a hard drive another gay gave me a hard drive <laughs> with the entire series oh, on it my god and I took it with me on a summer internship thing I did in Hong Kong and used it as a way of like feeling, I guess, connected to New York while I was there um, and in a place that I that I sort of had not expected to go and ended up there by strange circumstances. So it meant a lot to me as like a show about New York and like a fairy tale, certainly, mm. because so much of it is is a surreal, almost a fairy tale about the city for sure. So that's that's just my background. I'm curious what what y'all's is first. I likewise somewhat missed the train on Sex in the City. And it's probably because I was just one of those like weirdo kids that wasn't keeping up with pop culture in a lot of ways. Like considering my gay preponderances at the time, it's sort of shocking. <laughs> but then like, you know, as a future doll and a future New Yorker, I feel like Sex in the City was just sort of their biosmosis. You know, it was mm. the kind of living, breathing cultural milieu that I kind of lived in with other people um, but I wasn't like a religious viewer uh, and and I think that it's weird before this reboot or sequel or whatever came out a lot of people have kind of like been coming back to the show and especially you know trans people for some of the just like egregiousness that yeah. was but but I guess I was always one of those people that subscribed to the show as a kind of fantasy and for me it was like Look, I have no real desire to be a rich white woman, and I thank my stars every day that I'm not, but there was something fun about fantasizing about this, like, version of New York that's not real, and this kind of, yeah, this this glamour, and, you know, all of the sorts of things that generally I like to extract from culture, so that's kind of been, you know, in the background mm -hmm. for me when coming to this new series. Yeah, that was it for me, too. I mean, I remember I didn't have HBO, but my friend did. And so we would all, you know, in high school, be at her house and put on Sex in the City. And we were very much into it in part for the sex part because mm. it was like graphic and explicit. And Samantha's storylines basically got edited out when it was aired on TBS or whatever. Syndicated, totally. Yeah, yeah. syndicated. That's the word. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but when you were watching it on HBO, it was super graphic. So we would all just sort of be like watching it with wide eyes. And, you know, I enjoyed <laughs> the fashion of it. I enjoyed the candy coated little girl big city ness of it. But, you know, yeah, yeah wasn't a big fan, but probably watched all the episodes. Mm hmm. Okay, so your question about the new series was, why do we think all these trans storylines are present? Yes. I mean, can I just say, y'all, like, uh, this series, it's, it's, it feels like a case of hives, you know? It's like, <laughs> I'm itchy all over, and I yes. can't, you know, but I can't ignore it. And yes, I'm rapidly consuming every episode. Yes, I'm participating in the memes and the, you know, the tweets. And yes, I'm talking to all my girls about it. But... I don't know. There's something really weird about this sort of broader genre right now of kind of like mea culpa reboot mm -hmm. or mea culpa sequels where 
shows that haven't been on the air for a while but are iconic reboot and it's like the only reason apparently to reboot them is to like overcompensate for their past sins in a way that's so embarrassing and you know I'm a big fan of a phrase that our sisters over on the Las Culturistas podcast used to talk about this kind of writing I think they developed it to talk about the morning show but they talk about like the writing room uh, the writer's room being like the third graders and it's just like the you know it's like this kind of like strange genre of TV writing that is just like way out there in some ways. And it's just like, it's not even ham-fisted, right? Um, but it seems to me like the whole series is asking this really bizarre question that I'm like, who's asking this question in our culture? Which is like, how would rich white women today make sure <laughs> that they can now belatedly be friends with rich black people and rich yes. trans people. And I'm like, mm-hmm. who's this speaking to? Like, this is not a concern. <laughs> and I just like, I find it so weird. And so it's not just like this tried and true kind of American genre of like bringing in minority characters to like give a tune up, you know, to the white every woman in this case. It's actually a lot weirder, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to get into this because I think some of the the trans characters are like doing stuff that I just, I'm like, what does this have to do with sex in the city? Like, why is there <laughs> stand-up comedy that the women keep referring to as a comedy concert? Why is that like, <laughs> why is there a Netflix stand-up special in the middle of sex in the city? Or like, why is there now this like, you know, life-changing, infamous kitchen fingering scene with Cynthia Nixon giving an orgasmic performance, you know, to remember forever. I just, I have a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And I feel like one of the fun things here is that like, there might not be answers because the show is not, let's face it, it's just like not working hard enough to have answers. Yeah. I fully agree that it's like a real soup of, I think, impulses and like anxieties. Um, So I'm happy. I'm glad that you feel that way. I, the only thing I would add to what you said, which I think is like uh, exactly right, is it also strikes me. And I, I know that, right. There's a whole writer's room. There's multiple directors. It's not just Michael Patrick King who's creating this. And yet the whole tone of it strikes me very much as like a gay man of a certain age working through his own discomfort and like growth process around gender and trans issues. It reminds me in some ways of conversations I've had to have with like gay male elders about those issues. Oh, interesting. And sort of the, the kinds of questions or preoccupy, not even questions, but like preoccupations that they seem to have. That's what it feels like to me almost anytime these storylines come up. And so I think I think that's just speaking to one of these weird anxieties that is present in the writing, you know, and again, it's not just him writing it, of course, but nonetheless, I think that is sort of coming in from that perspective. Yeah. And I think the justification behind a lot of these reboots, and I would absolutely put the L word Generation Q in this category, Mm. is to show how, well, A, like you said, Jules, to respond to criticisms about the lack of diversity in the original version. And B, and this is especially pronounced in And Just Like That, which is so awkward to put into conversation because of the way that title is constructed, (laughs) the whole theme seems to be like, 
oh, these characters got old all of a sudden. And how are they reacting to middle age? There was actually a really good piece in the New York Times by Rhonda Gorelick called Middle Age Doesn't Happen Just Like That. Yeah. And she talks about how strange and unrealistic it is for all of these characters to be commenting on how their bodies are changing and how they're aging just in, in regular conversation as if they woke up from a dream and were suddenly 50 versus experiencing aging <laughs> and you know changing in the culture over time organically little by little like they clearly mm-hmm. have met black people before and yet both Miranda and Charlotte are awkward around black people and trans people so i feel like the writers of the show decided you know what modern issues that point to signs of the times will we have these characters be reacting to and they thought like oh well black people and trans people seem to be in the news a lot lately and are modern issues that people have trouble interacting with let's have let's show how these characters are having trouble interacting with demographics of people that they have clearly been aware of before and to your point Jules about who is this for I mean it's clearly not for black people or trans people because Mm -hmm. in the comedy concert that we were talking about Che Diaz who's non-binary makes a joke about how if they had a penis you know, succeeding in comedy would be so much easier. I would be hard pressed to think of a trans person who would make a joke equating having a penis with being a man. It just tells me that they're trying to speak to anxieties that a very specific group of people Mm. who are a lot more like the main characters who are being forced to grow by these other side characters have than, you know, representing the actual populations that they've awkwardly inserted into this show that said i'm enjoying it (laughs) well that's the thing right i mean that's the spooky like alchemy going on here is that i can't tear my eyes away and it's not because it's like a train wreck or a car crash necessarily but i think this is a really interesting aspect of what happens in the sort of adaptation from you know 20 ish 20 plus years ago to today and if the show original sex in the city was always a little bit kind of like a gay man's transposition into white women. Right. Yeah, which was fun and playful and weird. There's a way that that, I think you're totally right, Brian, just like translates really weirdly now, uh, in particular in relation to gender, but in other ways too. And I think that that question of like, what New York City are they living in, you know, where they've never interacted with trans people or black or brown people is just so... I mean, part of it, too, is like, oh, gosh, all these shows that were like, we're going to set ourselves in this fictional universe where COVID ended after the first round of vaccines. And it's like, (laughs) wow, plunge the dagger further into my heart. Why don't you? (laughs) So all the throwaway lines to the pandemic are just like Mm -hmm. so violent now. But I think in general, right, it's like it's so interesting to me that race and gender or race and transness are working in tandem. Right. Mm. Like as a as a South Asian, as a Desi, we were all up in arms after the notorious Diwali episode, which has like very little Diwali in it at all, but Mm. features Carrie going to the quote unquote sorry shop with Sima, (laughs) which say it with me again, people literally has zero saris in it. There are no saris on display. They (laughs) are all lingas. Yes. And like, okay, sorry, linga. Fair enough. If you're not like in the world, you may not know the difference, but it's like kind of the basic distinction in sort of mm. party wear in, you know, South in, or in uh, South oh, Asian party wear. And it's just like one of these weird choices where it's like, I'm so confused who made this mistake because then it really makes this line like, 
it's not cultural appropriation, it's cultural appreciation. <laughs> and, you know, it just makes it fall really flat. And there's a sort of defensiveness to the show that yes. is like undermined by what it's showing us, where I'm like, it's cool, it's cool. Like, if you want to put these um, middle-aged white women in weird situations, put them in weird situations, but don't be so cagey the whole time. And then make these weird mistakes yeah. that just sort of put people on edge. And, uh, you know... It seems to me like, you know, some good revision and rewriting could have like cleaned up a lot of that. But in some ways, it's still very compelling. And I do think there are some interesting questions about aging, you know, that come up. Like I was really thrown how like suddenly for one episode only, Carrie is getting a hip replacement. And she's <laughs> yes, like all so, of a sudden. So quick. <laughs> so quick. And I'm like, I'm sorry, is 55 supposed to be like ancient in our culture all of a sudden? Like, I don't really consider 55 to be like especially old. But then also it's just like truly the magic of the show, right? Is that at the end of that episode, she's like, I'm just like that. It's been three months and I'm recovering. And I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. The hip replacement was like up was like a plot device to do two things. One, pass some time because you know she's grieving the loss of big whatever. But also, like apparently Carrie's hip replacement was actually just a plot device to allow Miranda to have sex with Che Diaz and get things yeah. in her kitchen. And I'm like, I mean, look, queer people and trans <laughs> sex happens in all sorts of beautiful ways. And I will say from personal experience, sometimes the plot lines that get you to sex are truly incredible and like beyond <laughs> the minds of cis people and straight people. Like, absolutely. Sure. And yeah, I'm like, we made Carrie Bradshaw get a hip replacement. Justin Miranda could get fingered. Yeah, that's, that's cold. That's true allyship, actually. That's right. true allyship. She peed in a Snapple she, bottle. She a peach diet Snapple. Snapple, diet peach. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought up the sex scene, Jules, because there was a lot of chatter that I saw on the queer internet about that scene. And I think there were a lot of straight people who thought it seemed very unrealistic. In fact, there was a piece, I actually don't know if the author was straight or not, but I'm just going to assume. There was a piece on Grazia Daily titled... This is why Miranda's orgasm was so loud in And Just Like That. <laughs> oh, my God. Really? <laughs> like, Wait, what was as... their explanation for why? Because as, yeah, it was like, non-binary? Because, yeah. Well, the explanation was that. So Michael Patrick <laughs> King explained on a behind-the-scenes podcast. No. A- as if everybody was asking why it was so loud. Like, because it was good sex. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but apparently, that was Cynthia Nixon's interpretation of what Miranda would sound like in that moment and she had this very animalistic reaction to having having sex after having not had sex in a while right her first time having queer sex and having sex with somebody as hot and swagger-tastic as Che Diaz (laughs) I actually thought it was extremely realistic and pretty hot But I saw a lot of people saying, you know, there's no chemistry here. This is absolutely ridiculous. It became a meme, which, yes, it should have become a meme. And as you say, the the whole premise of it that Carrie's, you know, peeing in a bottle in the next room and that this queer sex represents some kind of betrayal of the friendship. That's a whole nother story. But, yeah, I thought that was a good scene. And actually, I was making dinner as I was watching the episode and sort of just like had my laptop open. I'm chopping things. And my wife walks in and is like, you just stopped chopping for like a minute. <laughs> I was just like <laughs> mouth open, like staring at the screen. What did you guys think of that 
moment. I mean, I'm blushing just thinking about it. I don't get the the no chemistry. I, I definitely felt there was chemistry and, and could understand the heat of a moment like that, for sure, for all the reasons that, that you describe. I did find it a little bit more unsettling. Um, and in fact, I had read a lot about it online before I actually saw it. And so when I saw it, I was- I love the more... idea of you reading multiple articles about this sex scene yeah, before. No, just like tweet, tweets and things. Just like people, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was like aware- no, that's of, allyship. I was aware, <laughs> I was aware that it was coming and I was like, okay. Um, it, and it, yeah, it did leave me a little more unsettled. I mean, there is there is the betrayal, there's the the peeing in the bed, but you know, if, if it does intersect with this other- I think, and I'm curious what y'all felt about this, but this kind of strange storyline to me about Miranda having sort of a brush with alcoholism um, that, that's woven oh, throughout the yeah, show. yeah, you're right. I mean, the the thing that precedes the sex scene is them doing uh, what seems to be quite a bit of shots in the middle of the afternoon, and Miranda seems to be a bit smashed. And so I'm not going to raise this to the level of, like, was it consensual? But, like, it undermines the sexual discovery that I think the show is maybe trying to get at with her to have it be mixed up with with that thing that the show clearly thinks is a huge problem for this character. I totally glossed over that in my mind. I was just so taken with it, but you're you're absolutely right. And afterwards she, you know, Carrie Carrie is upset and is like, what the hell was was that? What's going on? Like I peed the bed. And, you know, she's like, oh, I was like super drunk. Like I, you know, I guess I lost track of what I was doing. So I don't, again, it feels like what Jules was saying earlier that like the show has a lot of different desires, but it's not being very controlled about how it, it puts them together. And so as hot as that sort of scene may have been in the abstract, I think it was framed in a very strange way that made it uncomfortable for me. Mm. Yeah, I, I feel similarly. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's a whole conversation to be had about like, why would someone like Che Diaz be attracted to someone like Miranda that I don't Mm -hmm. think let me just put it this way the show doesn't have an answer for that right and that's just sort of in general I think the problem we're talking about is that trans people and people of color are just around these white women and the show has no idea why I mean in Mm -hmm. some cases it sort of does the answer is class because they're rich okay sure (laughs) but but Che I'm not exactly sure. And and I think there's a way that that scene really instrumentalizes Che's character in the sense that like, mm-hmm. and, and don't get me wrong, I am not coming for service tops. Like, I love you, I see you. <laughs> I have benefited from many butches and masks, you know. But there's this way that like Che is sort of there and it's like unclear why Che wants to get with Miranda other than Che's character has been established as bisexual and non-binary in the definition of crazy horny always having sex with everyone and it's like that's not really a personality and like there is a way that i think like in-house like we sometimes you know like trans folks and queer folks like we willingly perform our hypersexuality or our horniness because like look it's a form of reclamation and we're we're showing that we're not afraid i'm not sure that that's something that we do for random straight (laughs) cis audiences right yeah and so it's sort of like all i can divine from this series so far about why che wants to have sex with miranda is that che just has sex with everyone all the time constantly i mean it's like it's this derivative of the same problem that their character has where like for several episodes they were constantly walking into a room and being like hello it's me che diaz Um, the comedian sure like the first time that happens like we know and it just feels that way too about their gender and sexuality where they're like hello it's me che diaz 
horny, non-binary, like bisexual who has like, I'm sure very practiced hands and is able to do great work. But it's like literally after Miranda comes, they're like, anyways, I got to go to Jersey. Super cool and slick. And it's like, well, sure. Like, Slip again, into all my DMs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, right. Literally slide into my DMs. I'm like, you can't say that to Miranda. You can't say that to Cynthia Nixon, my what? And so I, I just think there's a lot of, like, again, decontextualized content happening. And mm. the pairing with the alcoholism is so weird, again, because of this kind of interval you know, this lapse in between the last series and this one where we're like, okay, we're we're led to believe that Miranda has like since come to find her life is boring. She quit her job. She's going yeah. to get an MA where she works with this brilliant black woman, black feminist professor that she's constantly putting in outrageous racist situations and who apparently still likes her for no reason. Yeah. And like, and then she's also drinking, but like, but whatever. And then she just like stops. I mean, it's just like, it's all so thin. Right. And I think sometimes like, yes, you know, we turn to television and I think there's an interesting question to ask about like what, what we want from prestige TV right now, especially several years into a pandemic where it's like escapism is more important than ever, but like the imperfection of human action has never been more on display. And it's like, (laughs) I want imperfect people Right. Mm. But I don't want them to be so almost like clownish in in their actions. Right. It's like Miranda's alcoholism is like, again, it really feels like, you know, like a a middle school essay on alcoholism. Alcoholism is when Auntie Miranda (laughs) has three little Tito's bottles in her expensive bag and gets too excited about like Prosecco at brunch. And it's like, Sure. And then by the flip side, that makes these trans characters like Che Diaz just seem really superficial and monodimensional. Yes. I want to just say that the Tito's bottles were camp for me. That was like the, <laughs> yes. the craziest thing. Because for one, she would have like Grey Goose for sure. But two, just having <laughs> just having those in her bag was such an absurd like just leap. Just three little nips dingling yeah, around in her Yeah, bag. like, oh, she's just pouring that into her coffee. Like, what's going on? It like didn't, it, whatever. That that whole subplot is, is bad and I, I rebuke it. That seems like a good place to wrap up. This was such a fun conversation. Listeners, I would love to hear your perspective on and just like that. You can email us with your thoughts at outwardpodcast at slate.com. Everyone has a white whale. Uh, the one that got away. This is mine. It's December 7th, 2014. Around... 1 a.m. The night of the attack. There's gas. So is there like gas leakers there? We don't know what the fuck it is. We got people vomiting blood. Rosemont police say an intentional chlorine gas leak has sent 19 people to the hospital. You're telling me that there was a terrorist attack in 2014 involving the use of chemical weapons, but nobody heard about it. This could not have been an accident. People were eager to assume that it was some sort of hate attack. I've gone through all the theories. I think there's only one that fits. <laughs> you have to read this story. Fair and Loathing. Out now wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's about it for this month. But before we go, we've got your monthly updates to the gay agenda. Brian, why don't you kick us off? What do you have to add to our agenda? 
I know I had a double provocation. I hope, I hope I can have a double gay agenda too. But there, but <laughs> I, I couldn't. I couldn't choose. So one is a deliciously vicious review attack assassination of uh, Hanya Yanagihara's new novel by Andrea Long Chu. This is in Vulture. Uh, it's called Hanya's Boys. If people want to look it up. I'm not speaking about the novels themselves because I've not read it, but what I am sort of recommending and praising here is just the genre of like the the hateful piece of criticism where the critic just clearly does not <laughs> like the the artist's body of work. That is what uh, Chu is up to in this review. Um, it's mainly about uh, Yanagahara's sort of penchant for holding her gay male characters in sort of a weird, abusive relationship. And I had heard a lot of people talk about A Little Life, which was the novel from 2015, in those terms. And so it was just really nice to see a long, nasty piece of criticism pulling out all of all of those themes and really, really taking them to task. Um, so that's called Hanya's Boys as in Vulture. Oh, and I just wanted to say one line from it very quickly, just as a little sample. Indeed, if A Little Life was opera, it was not La Boheme, it was Rent. Oh, God, <gasps> death. <laughs> Okay. Truly the meanest thing anyone has ever said. Hostile, hostile. No, I love it. My other one was another little Christmas present I got this year, but I just think it's the gayest thing I've ever been given. And so I want everyone to know about it. Are y'all aware of liquor filled chocolates, little in the shape of bottles? Do you know what as I'm talking about? As a concept? Yeah, as a concept. I, I was aware not. Yeah. So, so it, it is possible to purchase. <laughs> These little chocolate liquor bottles. I'm talking about like an inch tall bottles in the shape of, of, of a bottle of booze that are filled with the actual liqueurs. So like, uh, I don't know, Galliano or Cointreau or anything like that. You can buy a little set of them and they're so cute. They come wrapped in little foil. You bite the ends off and like sip out the liqueur. <gasps> I'm, t- I'm tilting my head back in a very gay way. You can't see it. And then you eat the little chocolate. So fucking cute and so gay. And every time I eat one, I just feel super fancy. I'll put a link in the show page. They're only like $23 for the set. For what? I, oh, for a set. For the set. For the set. No, for like 12 of them or something. But they are delicious and cute and you will just feel as fancy as anything. So if you need like a stocking stuffer or just a little gift for somebody, this is this is my recommendation. See, if and just like that were gayer, those would have been jingling around in Miranda's backpack yes, yes, instead yes. of the nips. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's right. So those are my two. Jules, what do you have for the gay agenda? Well, I have a sort of sister podcast recommendation, um, something that if you're feeling the kind of hangover of problematic trans representation from and just like that, Go over and tune into Harsh Reality, a podcast about Miriam Rivera, who is a a trans woman and reality TV star who appeared on this really weird uh, British TV show in the early 2000s called There's Something About Miriam. And, you know, those of you who who were around at the time might remember this kind of infamous show. It was a reality dating show on the Sky Network where mm. Miriam was, you know, sent off to Ibiza with all of these horny young uh, British lads to compete for her love, you know, just sort of like any number of other shows at the time. But none of the men knew oh Miriam's terrible secret that she was trans and they reveal it at the very last episode of the show. And it became just like a worldwide media sensation. There was a lawsuit, things got really hectic. 
and there is a lot of aftermath and I don't want to spoil all of it, but you know, there's this incredible podcast um, featuring another one of our beloveds, Trace Lissette as our narrator and hostess with the mostess, also uh, put together with one of my favorite uh, transcultural producers, Morgan M. Page, who's a historian and, and runs her own podcast as well. But it's this really interesting kind of, you know, anatomy or sort of like postmortem of the show, kind of unpacking it and, you know, with interviews and asking some really interesting questions, again, about this kind of time span, right? Like what has changed in trans representation from 2000 and, you know, two or three to now, but also actually what hasn't and, and how the kind of spectacularization of trans women on TV actually maybe hasn't changed as much, mm. even if we sort of understandably react with cringe, you know, to this kind of framing of trans womanhood in terms of deception. To me, what's so interesting, other than just having a chance to go back, because how often do we really have the chance <laughs> to go back, you know, to these sorts of weird one-off shows that become sensations right. and actually say a lot, right, and sit with people who were impacted by that and have it really thoughtfully unpacked by trans women, right? Like that truly makes the difference. Trace Lissette's work is incredible. I mean, she, for example, narrates some of Miriam's writing online and, you know, just mm. kind of, you know, interjects with what she knows from that moment. And there's something really powerful about that, but just sort of formally. And, and I, you know, I'm curious if listeners have, you know, thoughts about this after they, after they take a look, it's really hard to go back and do a show about a reality show, because in some ways the podcast series has to use the format of the reality series, right? Mm, and we're so accustomed to this in these kinds of podcast shows now where it's like slowly unwinding and then the twist and the shocker and the payoff, right? And then the aftermath. And it's really interesting to sort of watch brilliant, talented, incredibly smart trans women take on that task with thoughtfulness and aplomb. So I highly recommend Harsh Reality, which is available you know, everywhere that you get podcasts. So if you're already listening to us here, you can surely take some time seven fantastic episodes well worth a listen oh my god that sounds so good i had yeah. no idea about that show oh yeah it really god. happened yeah wow i'm recommending a book this month it came out a year ago but i only just recently read it on the recommendation of a friend it's called milk fed by melissa broder oh my god <laughs> what a disturbing and sexy and disorienting and uh, you know, disgusting book. It was so good. It's a very quick read, a very, I won't say easy read, because again, it's very affecting. But it's about this woman in LA who has an eating disorder. She's obsessed with being thin. And then she gets acquainted with this fat Orthodox Jewish woman who works at the frozen yogurt store that she goes to every day. And starts making her these, you know, decadent Sundays that she can't resist. She becomes obsessed. The, you know, protagonist, I guess, uh, becomes obsessed with this frozen yogurt. Cashier learns to love food again. Has these incredibly vivid and depraved sexual fantasies and experiences that lead to some personal growth. It's just such a pleasure to read. Wow. The descriptions of food and sex are very similar and intertwined. Mm -hmm. And clearly these two things are related in, you know, the protagonist's internal life. And I really enjoyed it, not because the queer love story or lust story at the center of it is particularly aspirational. It seems 
there are many parts of it that seem very unhealthy and fetishizing <laughs> and exploitative, but there are parts of it that contain some really fresh feeling observations about the connection between what we want and how we feel about ourselves and how desire, you know, stems from within. And so it's, it's very related in a lot of ways to how we see ourselves. It's also one of the few pieces of literature that I've read that describes at length graphically, you know, sex with fat people who are hot because they're fat, which mm. I really enjoyed reading. I did read an interview with the author who said her agent cut about 50% of mentions of the clitoris in the book, but there's still plenty to go around. Honestly, I can't even imagine there being 50% more. So I hope that sells it for you. Again, it's called Milk Fed by Melissa Broder. Sold. Yeah, totally sold. All right, that is the show for this month. Please send us feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com, or you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. Myron is our wonderful producer. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And if there was a real queer currency, her portrait would surely be on the highest denomination. <laughs> if you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it and rate and review the show so that others can find us and join in the fun. Outward will be back in your feeds on February 16th. Until then, goodbye, Christina. Bye, Brian. And Jules, welcome to the show again. Can't wait to have you next month. Thank you so much. Take care and keep strutting those can 95. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, stay gay.